Before we look into God's Word together today, this past week, a former elder of this congregation passed into the Lord's presence. His name was Hal Cook, and Hal was 94 years old when he graduated to glory. I wanted to specifically mention Hal's passing because when I came here 33 years ago, the church needed to make a substantive amount of changes in order to be positioned for God's best in the future. And all of you know, change is not always welcomed by everyone. And back in that day, there were numerous people who didn't welcome the changes that God was ordering. And I generally heard from them and those kinds of letters nobody likes to receive. But there was one elder among all of the elders who constantly encouraged me to stay the course. He pulled me aside one day and he said, you know, I'm not comfortable with all the changes that we're making, but he said, I'm happy with them because I've been praying for years that God would bring renewal to my church, and I'm seeing that happen. And I'm seeing new people coming to the Lord, and that's what matters most. So at a time when the flack at times was a bit heavy, Hal Cook was one of several very respected leaders within the church who said, we're with you, we believe it's of the Lord, be encouraged. So I just wanted to note his passing because not only do I owe him a great deal, but really you do as well because much of what is happening at ACAC today is because of faithful men like that. And their contribution is not forgotten by God, nor should it be forgotten by us. Now, this past week, our 91-week journey took us into one of my favorite Old Testament books, the book of Nehemiah. And I want to teach from the book of Nehemiah today. And to launch us into that, I want to read the first chapter, the third and fourth verses. This passage has a great deal to say about the expanded influence of the Holy Spirit in us. Nehemiah is speaking, and he said, They said to me, the remnant who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Today our focus will be on despair or repair. It's a choice we all have to make. And we're going to discover that Nehemiah really is a parable of restoration. Before we embark on that journey, join me as we ask for the Holy Spirit's direction. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, I gladly confess my inadequacy and our inadequacy. I cannot preach your truth, and we can't understand it and apply it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So together we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to hear your voice and know our next steps. And as always, we pray this, that your church might reflect your glory and that we might accomplish your mission in a broken world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. You're probably aware there was a country music party on the north side of Pittsburgh last evening, a Kenny Chesney concert. 
People were eager to get to that event. They were parking up my neighborhood at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then with their appropriate bent cowboy hats and their pull-along coolers, they went by my door making their way to the stadium. Again, many, many hours before the event began, they were eager to be a part of the party. And as I was watching that unfold, and that happens frequently where I live, the thought occurred to me that while we don't often think of it in these terms, life as God intended, was meant to be a never-ending party. It was meant to be an ongoing, eternal celebration of God, of His gorgeous creation, of the human family created in His image, and abundant, eternal life. But if you've read the account, you know the first guests at the party basically blew the whole thing apart just as it was getting started. And so sin and suffering replaced the celebration, leaving the human race feeling denied and frustrated. Now, thankfully, the story goes on to tell us that our host, our creator, didn't throw his hands up and shut the whole thing down. He rolled up his sleeves and he shut down the powers of sin and death so that those who respond to him could be restored and pick up the celebration once again. In short, God wants to remove our despair, and he wants to complete our repair. Would you read that with me? God wants to remove our despair and complete our repair. And as strange as it may sound, the ancient narrative about urban renewal in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day has a great deal to offer us as to how God restores us. It's much more than historical information. It is quite literally a blueprint for our transformation. It's a real-life dramatization of passages like Philippians 2.12 and the 23rd Psalm because it demonstrates how we're to work out our salvation and how God restores our souls. Now, I'm aware there are folks with whom we share this world who feel no need of repair and who would say there is no hint of despair in their life. They're happy with their life apart from God. But never forget there's a good reason for that. It's not a good thing, but it's the reason. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the unbelieving so that they cannot recognize spiritual realities. And that's why they feel no need of repair and why they don't particularly feel any despair. Satan has blinded them to their condition. But their denials don't trump spiritual realities. The atheist doesn't remove God from his universe by simply saying God doesn't exist. The reality is, as I read the writings of atheists, they can't remove God from their thoughts. <laughs> he seems to just govern most of their thoughts. So despite protests from the unbelieving, the truth is we all need two things. We all need rebirth and repair. The first one occurs in one miraculous moment, and the second unfolds over time. 
It doesn't happen overnight, and it certainly doesn't happen in your sleep. Repair is the result of doing the right things and doing them faithfully and doing them over and over again. It requires a conscious cooperation with God and a continuing submission to God. In summary, repair begins when we follow God's blueprint. He's left us a blueprint. When we follow it, then our repair moves into the fast lane. Now, it's logical to ask, Pastor, why is repair necessary after our rebirth in Christ? Doesn't Paul say that if we are in Christ, we are part of God's new creation and old things have passed away and all things have become new, so why do I still have sin struggles? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. Salvation changes our future, not our past. Our past is forgiven, and we don't have to relive it, but it isn't rewritten. And that's why we need repair. We have entered into God's new created order. But before we entered into God's new created order, we lived our life under the influence and the power of sin, and sin destroys everything it touches. So when we step into God's kingdom, we step in as forgiven but damaged goods. We think a great deal these days about refugees. Well, a believer is a refugee from spiritual tyranny who has stepped into a land, a new land of spiritual liberty. But as he or she steps across that border, they're bringing with them in their baggage their old fears, their old habits, their old value systems, and their old memories. See, there's a reason why the New Testament keeps telling us to put off old things. And the reason is quite simple. We come into the kingdom carrying a lot of old things that we are reluctant to put off. So we often begin our new life like the temple in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. That temple had been restored and was beautiful, but all around it there were ruins, the residue of past defeats. So when we step into God's kingdom, we're forgiven, but we aren't perfected. We're liberated, but we're not mature. We've been empowered for victory, but we're still vulnerable. And much like Nehemiah's contemporaries in Jerusalem, God has restored our worship, but we must restore his rule in our lives. Again, when Nehemiah received the report, the temple was gorgeous. It had been restored, but all around it was ruin. It was like center city Detroit, where there's been a great amount of money spent on renewal, but all around center city Detroit, It's a nightmare, broken infrastructure. And that was the case in Jerusalem. And that picture has been given to us by God as a picture of faith that hasn't gone far enough. You see, if our rebirth that restores us as worshipers of God doesn't lead to repair of our spiritual infrastructure and our spiritual walls, then we find ourselves living contradictions. The splendor of worship is a part of our life, 
but it's surrounded by spiritual defeat and spiritual devastation and spiritual ruin. And the story of Nehemiah was given to remind us it shouldn't remain that way and it doesn't have to remain that way if we follow God's blueprint. And if you follow the blueprint that is given to us here in this book, it reminds you that our repair begins. It has its launching point when we accept an accurate report of our condition. I mean, come to think of it, all change in human hearts begins with the reception of an accurate report about your condition, an accurate diagnosis. Nehemiah received a report from some trusted reporters, trusted messengers, who had been to Jerusalem and who had witnessed the devastation firsthand. Now, in similar fashion, you and I don't start down the road towards our repair until we receive an accurate, trustworthy report from somebody who has witnessed our need of repair firsthand. And you have that somebody in your life if you're a follower of Christ. He's the Holy Spirit, and He dwells in every believer. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows where you're broken. He knows where you're dysfunctional. He knows where you're fearful. He knows where you're doubting. He knows where you're in tyranny to old memories, old pains, old habits. He knows where a negative thing said over you is still resounding in your soul and keeping you from God's best. He knows you better than you know yourself, and you can trust His report. But the reality is what we desperately need, we rarely welcome. We really don't want to know the truth. We say we want to know the truth. But then when the Holy Spirit begins to offer it, uh, our opinion changes dramatically. And there are reasons for that. Our heart is deceptive. And we always deceive ourselves first. So where our character is concerned, we tend to hustle ourselves. And our hearts are also proud. So when the Spirit says, you're not everything you think you are, you're not everything you want to be, we tend to balk at that suggestion and get defensive. And we begin to argue with the Holy Spirit rather than agree with the Holy Spirit. But you see, arguing with the Holy Spirit will never bring about repair. (laughs) Your repair starts when you agree with the report of the Holy Spirit. There's a biblical word for that report. It's called conviction. When Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, it simply means He's telling you the truth about your condition. Now, if you'll agree with His report rather than arguing with it, the next step, the Spirit's report will lead you to mourn over your mess, to be heartbroken over your condition. Why is that necessary? Because the repair of our souls requires a dramatic about-face that Scripture calls repentance. And Scripture tells us that the genesis of repentance is in godly sorrow. That means a sense of sorrow and regret that is birthed by the Holy Spirit when we compare what we could be in Christ, what we can be in Christ, with what we are currently. A spirit-birthed sorrow. 
And that spirit birth sorrow paves the way for spirit-produced transformation. Your repair will have its roots in repentance, and repentance has its roots in godly sorrow. That's why when churches avoid teaching about things like sin and godly sorrow and repentance because they don't want to appear negative, they always bring about negative results because they rob their people of a sense of sin, that robs them of a sense of sorrow, and that robs them of the impetus to repent. And since they don't repent, they just keep doing the same old, same old, and wondering why things aren't getting any better. Some say, I don't talk about godly sorrow. I don't want people to despair. Well, then you're not talking about godly sorrow appropriately because despair and godly sorrow are polar opposites. Despair is the sense that nothing will ever change. Repentance and godly sorrow is the way to change. It's the entrance into change. It's a far cry from despair. So you have to receive the Spirit's report, and if you do, you've got to sorrow over your mess, and that's a good thing. But that's not enough. Your mourning must lead to three other things, confession, a commitment to action, and prayer for God's intervention. Now, Nehemiah didn't create the mess in Jerusalem, but he prayed as if he had. He said, God, forgive us. Because Nehemiah understood God's people are one. God makes us one. We're in this together. And so when a mess exists within the people of God, God doesn't want me saying, well, I had nothing to do with that one. That's their mess. That's not my mess. No, no, if we are really one body, your mess is my mess. And I'm sorry to tell you this, my mess is your mess. Hey. It's our mess, and we all need to own it and ask God's forgiveness for it. So he confessed the corporate mess as if it was his personal mess. He took ownership of the need. But he didn't stop there. After his confession, he made a commitment to be a part of the solution. Nehemiah didn't write a letter and say, what are you people got to do about this mess? No, he said, God, I must do something about this mess mess. As a pastor, let me be frank with you, sometimes when people say to me, pastor, what's the church got to do to help me? I'm, I'm so tempted to ask, what are you going to do to help you? Is it always us waving a magic wand while you do nothing but ask? If we want your restoration more than you want it, <laughs> If we're more willing to work on it than you're willing to work on it, honey, it ain't happening. That's not commitment. That's pipe dream. Same thing's true when people see a, a need in the church or a need in the community. Pastor, what, what's the church got to do about this? And again, I want to say, what are you going to do about it? When you say the church, you're a part of that. So what are you going to do about it? If we launch into that new mystery, can I count on you to be a part of it? Or do you just give out job descriptions and assignments while you do nothing yourself? Hey, church has those folks. They have the spiritual gift of surveillance. <laughs> so Nehemiah owned it and made a commitment. 
But Nehemiah knew even commitment requires resources. He would need the king's permission. He would need the king's provision. So Nehemiah prayed. And he prayed that God would move the king's heart, that God would give him favor. God would give him favor. Now, what followed was four months of nothing. But it was a reminder that God's delays are not God's denials. Why does God often delay the answer you've requested? It's because repairing ruins is a very complex proposition. And more things have to be put in place before you can be restored than you're aware of. A whole lot of things have to change before your change will be everything God has ordained. So repair involves factors that we control, and it involves factors that require God's intervention, but both of them require prayer. I need to know, God, what can I do and what must I do? And I need to know God will do what only he can do. So as Nehemiah prayed, Eventually, the answer came. He got an extended leave of absence with the king's blessing. Now, the king's motivations weren't pure. There had been a revolt against his empire in Syria. He knew if he put a political ally like Nehemiah in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, once restored, could be a buffer between Syria and Egypt and would help protect against further civil unrest and perhaps rebellion. So his heart wasn't pure. But God can use the unbelieving to advance his causes. He does it all the time. Does it all the time. That's why when I see Christians despair, and I'll see that not in the not too far distant future, when I see Christians despair over election results, I often want to say, how puny is your God? Do you really think the Almighty God has got to grind to a halt because we elect somebody who isn't competent or worthy? People have been electing incompetent rulers since Genesis. Somehow, the work of God has continued on. God is not dead. I'm not implying you shouldn't pray, you should pray. I'm just saying, don't despair about men. My Lord, the early church exploded under Caesar. Caesar! You talk about a lousy ruler, a corrupt empire, and the church exploded. We so focus on the human because we forget the divine. So God provided everything that would be needed. Now, upon his arrival, the first thing Nehemiah did, interesting, he walked around Jerusalem at night with a few trusted friends to assess the damage. And your personal repair always will involve a walk with the Holy Spirit. When David said, search me, O God, and show me if there's any wicked way in me, the, the answer to that prayer is the Holy Spirit saying, okay, let's take a walk through your heart and let me point some things out to you. See, that's why church should be a place that makes you uncomfortable as well as comfortable. 
And when churches say, oh, we don't ever want to make our people uncomfortable, they'll quit coming. Hey, if you never make them uncomfortable, they will quit growing. Because change always has its genesis in unrest with the status quo. Where does Scripture say God only wants to make you comfortable? You're in a bad place. You're doing stuff that's robbing you and tyrannizing you. Are you comfortable? Can I help you be comfortable while you go down the wrong road? That's like asking somebody on a plane to the wrong destination. Are you comfortable? Thought you were going to Boston, you're going to San Antonio. But are you comfortable? That's all that really matters. So the Holy Spirit wants to take you on that walk. He wants you to name your sin. He wants to acknowledge your sin. Stop denying it. Stop excusing it. Stop minimizing it. Stop redefining it. And stop blaming it on other people. If only they were different, I could be different. See, the oldest sport known to man is passing the buck. Adam said that woman. Woman said that serpent. Passing the buck. You know, sometimes we overlook things in Scripture because they aren't said directly. This story contains an example. Do you notice what Nehemiah didn't do? He didn't belittle the people for their failure to start the restoration, even though they had had over 100 years to do so. Now think of that. He could have arrived in Jerusalem and said, You losers. What is wrong with you? You've had over a century to do something, and you haven't done anything. When I was growing up in church, I was continually sitting under sermons that told me I was a loser, so I live like a loser. Now, all Nehemiah did was he described the challenge before them and said, let's do something about it. And you know what his name means? It means the consoling breath or spirit of God. That's what Nehemiah means. He is a type of the Holy Spirit. He is a personification of the Holy Spirit. And his actions remind us that the Holy Spirit specializes in restoration, not accusation. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to keep telling you how rotten you are. The Holy Spirit wants you to know how righteous Christ is and call you up to that standard. He wants you to meet your potential in Christ. He will be your biggest cheerleader, not your biggest critic. If you're listening to a voice that tells you you're never going to change, you're listening to the wrong voice. Once the people were assured of resources and assistance and leadership, they said, let's get started. Notice plural, let's us get started. Everybody was to be involved because restoration requires the contribution of others. Listen, Lone Ranger Christians never get fully restored because they don't have the adequate resource of other people being used by God to speak into their life, to either challenge them or affirm them, to either kick their rear end or put wind in their sails, and we need both. That's why common, unspectacular things like growth group interactions are so important. But even those will fall short if you don't have a commitment to help one another in the long, awkward, challenging, often difficult task 
of soul repair. It's easy to recite scripture together. It's easy to rejoice together. It's easy to reaffirm truth together, but it's hard, hard work to do repair together. But there's a name for that hard work. It's called church. Church. Church is where God works on you. If you say, that, that, that teaching's getting on my nerves. Good. Good. Well, that didn't make me feel very good. All right, sometimes you've got to feel bad before you get glad. This isn't Disney World. Our goal isn't that you go out of here happy. It's that God would make you holy. And then you'll be happy. Now, you knew this would happen. Immediate opposition came against Nehemiah because there were neighboring nations that didn't want Jerusalem restored. And it happened quickly. Here's why. The initial days of restoration are always the most difficult because God's enemies fear momentum in the direction of holiness. My observation, having pastored for 40-some years, is that when Christians fail at efforts of restoration, their failure usually happens in the first two months, not after a year, not after two years. Because after a year or two, they've, de- they've established momentum in the direction of holiness. They're going down the road. Now it's hard to get them stopped. That's why Satan always brings out the big guns immediately. He doesn't want you getting out of low gear. He doesn't want you pulling out of that parking spot. He doesn't want you to establish momentum. If you can persevere through those first days and months when it seems like all hell is breaking loose, and it probably is hell breaking loose, then you'll make it. You know, studies have shown how long it takes to really, really break free of a negative habit and establish a new one, 40 days. How many times do we encounter 40 days or 40 years in Scripture? Evidently, God got a hold of psychology today before it was written. <laughs> Nehemiah's response, you've got to love it. Here's what he said to the enemies. The God of heaven will give us success. This isn't about us dudes. You don't know who you're messing with. The God of heaven will give us success, and we're going to rebuild. And oh, by the way, you'll have no share in what happens. You won't have any claim to it. You'll be on the outside looking in. And his words affirm that Satan has no right to limit your restoration. No right whatsoever. So the story of Nehemiah, we'll probably visit it again next week. It reminds us you don't have to be like a temple in the midst of ruins. Your spiritual life doesn't have to look like center city Detroit surrounded by crumbling Detroit. You can be restored in your worship. In fact, you already are, but you can also be restored in every other venue of life. You don't have to accept the same old, same old. Don't have to make a treaty with the same old sins. Don't have to live in quiet desperation, knowing you're loved, knowing you're forgiven, but knowing you're not transformed. You don't need to be haunted by the gap between God, what, what God wants you to be and what you are. God's Spirit stands ready with an accurate report, godly sorrow, and all the other things you will need. 
He wants to perform a radical spiritual urban renewal on you. Because you see, the Christian life is only vibrant and awesome when you get in all the way. If you try to live with one foot over in the world and one foot over in the kingdom, you're going to end up spiritually bow-legged. You're just never going to be comfortable. You know too much to be happy back in the world, but you don't know enough to be happy in Jesus. You're just miserable. And then you go to churches and make them miserable. You've got to get into this all the way. You've got to choose repair. And if you do, there's somebody who's got a perfect track record of pulling it off every time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Nehemiah and ancient Jerusalem, for this personified, dramatized reminder that we don't have to stay the same old, same old you stand ready to remove our frustration and despair and to complete our repair. You have said, having begun that good work in us, you will complete it. And once we believe that, we're well on our way. Help us to learn the pattern in Jesus' name. Amen.